Hi there, I'm Andy Bush. Great to have your company and access to your deepest, darkest fears for another edition of Scarred for Life, a deep dive into the dark, dystopian pop culture of the 1970s, 80s and beyond. Uh, an exploration of the things that maybe scared you growing up and what those things say about us in the present day. I'm joined, as ever, by Stephen Brotherston and David Lawrence, co-authors of the terrifying Scarred for Life books, upon which this podcast series is based. Check them out. Get one. They're amazing. Uh, every week we'll be speaking to a special guest. They'll be bringing with them three horrific childhood memories that have literally scarred them for life. Right, before we get going and speaking to our special guest, uh, let's have one of your scars, something that's terrified you from when you were a kid and we've had a lovely email into the show from Natalie Burgess from Wakefield who's emailed to say, hi everyone, I'm really looking forward to hearing everyone's stories of the things that scarred them for life. For me, I'm 41 now, it was the British Rail public information film Robbie, about a boy who tried to cross a live railway track shouldn't laugh, and got his trainers stuck in the tracks and, of course, was hit by a train. It was really effective as I never wanted to go anywhere near a train track and still don't really like trains. The film felt like a real movie aimed at kids, so it was shocking that it was so brutal. I vaguely remember others about pylons climbing into fridges on rubbish tips and open water, but the train running over him really stuck in my head. All the best, Natalie. It's a great one. It's a classic. It's, um, yeah, they did two versions of Robbie. In fact, no, it was the same film, but Peter Purvis from Blue Peter originally introduced and narrated the film. And if you watch it, I mean, the film itself is fantastic. And like Natalie says, the scene where basically he gets his feet amputated by a train is horrific. You nice, don't, you don't see nice. Any, you don't see anything. Cuts away. That's so, normally worse, though, isn't it? That's yeah, worse when you can't see it. It's a classic see. reaction scene where one of his friends screams the place down. But... Peter Purvis does the best accidental partridge you will ever see at the beginning <laughs> of um, Robbie. And I, I assume um, as the 70s turns to the 80s that he was kind of deemed too uncool for the kids because they reshot his intro and voiceover with Keith Chegwin to keep it a bit more down with the kids. Oh, it's really? A, Make it a bit more kind of fun knockabout? Yeah. But it's still dark, but I think it was more of a... Checkers Place Pop was on. This is more of a youth figure than... I mean, Peter Purvis was probably in his like late 30s, early 40s, but he was probably like, you're on hip now, daddy-o, kind of thing. <laughs> but the, do you know what the worst thing about that film is? The poor kid has had his feet amputated by a train. The police come round to tell his, his mum. The film ends with kind of... I think it's his, his mum coming into his bedroom... Um, to give him some food or whatever it was, his drink. And also, I, I guess it's the sparks or something from the train. Half of his face has been burnt. But hanging up oh. behind his bedroom door, his mum has kept his footy boots because he was going to be a footballer when he grew up. <laughs> and I'm like, how cruel is that, man? Talk about rubbing it Taunting in. him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Robbie still keeps his boots. Nobody knows why. Not even Robbie. After all, they'll never be any use to him. Chances are he'll spend the rest of his life in his wheelchair. Oh, wow. Well, there, there you go. Uh, visceral memories there for Natalie. Uh, thank you so much for getting in touch about that. And there's, and there's uh, tons of ways you can get in touch. Come and say hello um, on Twitter at Scarred for Life 2. Uh, over on the Facebook page as well, where there's been some great stuff shared recently. And Scarred for Life book on Instagram. 
Uh, this week we are joined by the multi-talented Stephen Gallagher. Stephen Gallagher is a screenwriter, a novelist and director. His works for TV include Doctor Who, stories for Tom Baker and Peter Davidson, episodes of high-tech action-adventure series Bugs, episodes of Chiller, Rosemary and Time and many more. His written works often link high-concept science with its potential horrors and his novels Chimera and October have made it onto screen as chillingly effective warnings of the perils of technology. And we should also probably mention that under the pseudonym John Lidecker, Stephen novelised the depressing 1980 motorcycling film Silver Dream Racer and under the name of Lisa Todd, he put the kids from fame into print. Uh, Stephen, great to have you on. How are you doing? Oh, great. What have I let myself in for here? <laughs> well, it's, br- it's brilliant to have you uh, on the podcast. You- you've written in so many different genres and uh, for-, for things in so many different genres, Stephen. Do you have a particular favourite? Oh, what are you saying is I'm such a tart. <laughs> <laughs> I was the kid in the toy shop, though. When I was, uh, when I was growing up, I was very much, you know, one of the, uh, I suppose, the first generation of, uh, of kids raised by TV. You know, I, I was born in the, uh, in the mid-50s, um, started watching TV in the 60s, throughout the 60s. Um, Doctor Who was like one of the, uh, the first things that really impressed and influenced me. Um, the Batman TV series, The Avengers... All that stuff was uh, was hugely formative for me. Very much the Anderson years, very much the ITC years. And I suppose what I looked upon it as was this fantastic playground that I wanted to play in. And from the very beginning, it was never just a case of, you know, sit there and consume the stuff. It was always a case of what great stories, how can I get involved? You know, so I would draw my own comics terribly oh, wow. you know? yeah i would uh, i mean I, I remember i did uh, my own man from uncle comic and i i copied all the likenesses from uh, from mort drucker's um satirical strip in mad magazine mad magazine famous monsters of filmland they were the kind of print stuff that i was into at the time as soon as i could uh, as soon as i could i could read i was into tv comp well play hour was the first one but that was that was soppy stuff and i remember standing in uh, in the news agents with my copy of play hour i must have been what Six, and I'm standing there with a copy of Play Hour, and there on the stand was TV Comic, and it was almost as if you know there was the the kind of safe uh, nursery thing in my hands, and there was the dangerous thing on the uh, on the shelves, and I remember just standing there, age six, questioning all my life choices and thinking, <laughs> <laughs> where did it all go so wrong? And and you know, my mother spotted this, and she bought me the TV Comic, and then I was away, you know, and I was a TV Comic kid until TV Twenty One came out. And then it was, sorry, TV comic, there's the bin over there. I'm with TV 21 now. And, uh, and that kind of set the pattern for my life, you know. And uh, I always say, you know, I, um, I, I must have had a happy childhood because I've spent my entire adult life kind of recreating it in one form or another. You know, all the stuff yeah. that I consumed, I've, I've, I've re- remade and put out. And, and then I think, well, you know, Okay, yeah, I did have a happy childhood, but look at the stuff that I've made, you know, and look at the, look at the tone of it, look at the tenor of it, and uh, and look at the genres that it's been in, and look at the, uh, you know, look at the emotions that I've always tried to stir, and you know, it's pretty dark stuff. So, I think, you know, for the purposes of of the conversation that we're having here, the whole scarred for life thing. I don't think I was scarred for life. I think I was made for life, and I've spent my life, you know, attempting to scar other people. 
That's a great way to look at it. We had um, the brilliant Jamie Anderson on uh, a few episodes back talking about his iconic father, Jerry Anderson, mm. the, their relationship. Uh, and Jerry was um, not one to keep anything about the past or look backwards at all and chuck out a lot of memorabilia. Have you, through your life and your career, Stephen, kept things? You talk about some of the early films you made. Are you, are you a good keeper of stuff that you've, you've done and, and interacted with? Or are you someone that kind of moves on, chucks that away and goes on to the next thing? I've kept most of the books, which you can probably see behind me. Um, a lot of stuff that um, I wish I'd kept, I didn't. Um, and maybe it's just as well because there was a hell of a lot of it. Um, my parents. What kind of stuff? What kind of thing? Oh, you know, exercise books full of stories and uh, and drawings. And uh, I had a friend, uh, John Hardman, at, uh, at secondary school, who used to, when our rough books were finished with, he used to nick them. He said, "These will be worth something someday." He said, so he had faith in me. <laughs> <laughs> faith that I didn't necessarily have, but and, and I don't think the rough books genuinely. I don't think the rough books are worth anything at all. But um, the act of creation was the stuff where all all that was the part where all the satisfaction was. Actually, you know what you were left with all the Airfix models. You know that I used to have all around my bedroom. They're all gone, and and you know why not? Because again, it was the pleasure of making them, not the uh, not the thing you were left with at the end. Um, that. In a way, you know, I'd, I'd, I lost interest and moved on at that point. No, no, fair enough. And, and you know, here's a question. Um, I don't know what you'll make of it, but uh, you're, from, you're from Salford, right? You were born yeah. in Salford, is that right? Uh, do you think there is an element of being from the north or being uh, a northerner, it gives you a predisposition towards being more interested in the darker side of things? Is there anything to do with geog geography, you think, in that? I don't necessarily think so. Um, I mean, I, I was born in the north. I've been all over the place. And now I live back in the north again. Um, I think possibly what was key uh, is the fact that I lived in the Granada area. And Granada TV um, was a big shaping influence in my childhood because they ran all the good stuff. You know, this was back in the 60s when all the regions tended to program quite differently. There were some regions that never ran Four Feather Falls, which was like the first big fantasy that, um, that I, I got my head around. I think there were some regions, there was at least one region that didn't run Supercar, which, um, you know, imagine the rubbish childhood being in the 60s and not seeing Supercar. Um, and when, when it actually came to it, you know, my first job in TV, I was at Granada for five years and I was able to expand my self-education there to a great degree because we would work evening shifts and in the evenings I would, I would wander around the building. I would read all the memos on people's desks. I would go down into studio and I would wander around the sets, um, and I'd go, I'd drop in on the engineers who were uh, manning the, uh, the, the telecine department late at night and I'd, I'd look into what they were doing. I could watch the VT guys working and generally had a whale of a time and got paid for doing it. And it was while I was there that um, one of the announcers who, um, like all the other announcers, moonlighted at the local radio station, Piccadilly Radio, um, doing commercials and voiceovers, um, said, you like, you write stuff, don't you? You know, you've, um, you've, you've always wanted to be a writer. Have you, have you ever fancied doing something for radio? So along came this kid who was, uh, was interested in writing and a bunch of actors who were all dead frustrated because all they ever got to say was, this is Granada and now look at the weather. Um, 
we got together. I wrote a little half-hour um, play. Oh, well, the first episode of a, of a longer serial. And um, along with um, Pete Baker and, uh, and Tony Hawkins from Piccadilly, we recorded it piecemeal in, uh, in the commercial studio. And Pete and Tony actually pieced it together and then dubbed all the effects onto it. And we played it to the program controller there. And he said, OK, make the rest of it. So I went from zero to a guy with a commission for six half hours of radio drama. And I wrote a science fiction play um, in six parts, um, which was a tremendous schooling in structure and how to tell a story in scenes and how to actually pace a story over a three-hour period. And I learned more in that process than I've learned from anything else anywhere ever since because that lesson helped me with the um the six part serial it helped me with structuring novels it helped me with structuring features at, at that kind of length and eventually it helped me with structuring short stories a lot of writers start out writing short stories and expand to a novel i did it the other way around i kind of learned the uh the longer form first and it was a quite a while before i could actually master the the concise art of the short story well, I mean, so let's uh, an interesting all round kind of uh, education in all the different areas there, Stephen. Let, let's uh, the, the point of this podcast then is that you, you come to us with three things that have scarred you for life. Let's get your first scar. Could we please, Stephen Gallagher? Okay, well, these are not TV programs, these are incidents from my life that somehow have fed one, or, one way or another into um, the, uh, the, the warped and twisted person that I did become. I sat and I, um, I, I kind of, you know, I free associated on my, my, my legal pad here. And I've asterisked the three things that absolutely stand out for me. And the first of them is my grandma's dolls. Now, when I was, uh, when I was five or six, um, my, uh, my parents were both working. My mother was a telephonist with the police and my dad was, well, he was a plumber in the early days and then he was a pipe fitter at Shell and then he, later he was to move into management. But, you know, we were a very young family. I was an only child. They were working all the hours that God sends and occasionally they had to unload me onto my grandma and, uh, and I would stay at grandma's house and I would sleep in grandma's bedroom and... A six-year-old, five-year-old or whatever I was in, in an old lady's house. I mean, you know, that's the scenario for, uh, for, for nightmares. <laughs> My grandmother had these two, um, I called them her dolls, but they were actually little statuettes. Um, there, was, there was this kind of post-war vogue for pseudo-African art. So it was a figure of, of a, a naked African man and a naked African woman. And one was either end of the, uh, the, the dressing table and they were in sort of some kind of black stone. I don't know what it was. And they stood about a foot tall. And um, in the twilight, in the, uh, in the, this is on uh, a little Salford back street with a street light outside the window. And you can imagine the, the light coming through the, the old neck curtains. I mean, not, <laughs> you know, not... A, a simple neck curtain, but a patterned lacy neck curtain. So it's throwing that shadow across the, the wall. And in the, in the light from that street light, I would lie there and I would watch these statues come to life. And they would stand and then 
first one of them would start to move and then the other one would start to move and they never left the top of the dressing table but they would walk around in a kind of flickering over over cranked motion you know like a like um like a stuttering movie projector um and to this day i will swear it happened i know it didn't happen but everything in my being told me that what i was witnessing was not an illusion you know not a hallucination but an actual phenomenon and that really really has stayed with me ever since because when i when i when i sat down to do this i thought oh th there's nothing really in my childhood that that scare, scared or scarred me like that and then i thought oh my god yeah the first <laughs> the first terrifying memory that i have that i can that i can crank all the way back to is is my grandmother's statues well, that's what i was going to ask you but you've kind of answered it was that kind of the hallucination mm. thing but if, it, if as far as you're concerned that is something that happened that you watched and saw happen and it happened more than once yeah i mean i, I stayed I, there that was gonna, yeah. what i was gonna ask you yeah did it happen again happened more than once and it got to the point where i was scared to go and and i Bloody told my hell. parents about it and they they kind of i think they understood the fear and they reassured me and everything else and and you know you cannot reassure someone who has that solid a conviction. I knew, I knew it wasn't possible. I knew it couldn't be real. And yet everything um, in my observation was that, yes, it was real. It wasn't real, but still it happened. And, um, Did, and it's, it's almost it the like... same motions? Yeah, yeah. And I suppose it's kind of like, you know, a metaphor for fiction in a way, you know, that some yeah. fictions um, have such a powerful streak of truth in them that whether it happened or not, doesn't matter so much as to whether the memory exists so uh, did, did this kind of thing find its way into something you've written or created in the future because you have that kind of childhood memory of that being scary so you maybe work something like that into something that you've written then Stephen yeah funny thing is I've just delivered a novella to subterranean press in uh, in America uh, 30,000 worder and I needed um, um, it's about the notion of whether there are ghosts or whether there aren't or you know the the thesis that i put forward in, in the novella to be pretentious about it is that there are no ghosts but there are haunted people yeah and um, yeah and the the haunting of the person is is where the ghost lives in a way so there is no external sort of factor and i needed some way of illustrating this and um and when it came to uh to to finding the imagery for it and to finding you know to digging down inside and finding the gut feeling that i was looking to create on the page i went all the way back to you know grandmother's house in what whatever it was 1959 1960 and uh and there i was and uh i can vividly see them even now you know i can see the layout of the room i can see the figures i can see them move so and were you a bit paralysed when this was happening because I remember one, one of my favourite um, 
like scary films to this day is Whistle and I'll Come to You from mm. 1968. And there's the element of the bed sheets moving around and, and he's paralysed in bed. Were you, was there an element of para- paralysis whilst this stuff was going on? What were you doing? Yeah, I was not able to move. Um, and I have, you know, read about the whole sleep paralysis thing and um, how you're, you're kind of on that edge between waking and dreaming. Um, and so the dream seems as real as any reality, and I'm sure I'm sure that explains it. Um, but it doesn't um, it doesn't in any way affect the memory of the experience or the experience itself. Um, yeah, there I was, kind of stuck in bed, unable to unable to cry out, unable to move. And the thing is, I was probably fast asleep, you know. Or yeah. I don't know, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Where, where are the dolls? Sorry, where are the statues now? Do you think are they still haunting you somewhere in the? In oh, the world they'll be or? in landfill somewhere. I'm oh, sure. Okay. The, so that's what I think. <laughs> this. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Dave, Dave, has this been triggering for you? Because obviously when we shared our our scars, our scares at the beginning of this series, uh, Dave yes. put forward the dolls that he had. Yeah, I I had a, a, a ventriloquist dummy. Uh, oh, my. 19, yeah, um, made by a Spanish company called Cremiel, C-R-E-M-E-A-L. And it was like this ginger, yeah. sort of bulging eyed thing. And um, mm. it used to, I, I got it for Christmas. And my parents, what mm. they would do, is they would put my presents on the bed first thing Christmas morning, so I'd wake up next to my presents. And if you wake up next to a ventriloquist dummy, it's one of those scary <laughs> things that ever, ever happens to you. If you've, ever, if, you've ever, if you've ever woken up next to a small ginger corpse, you will know exactly how I felt. But, but yeah, we're talking about you know the, the, the fact that these uh, statues seem to move. Uh, we have a friend, Chris, and he had one of these dolls as well, and he couldn't have it in his bedroom. Mm. And I guess it's maybe for the similar sort of reason that maybe the light was playing through the window so it looked like it moved or something. Especially with the There light. is something creepy yeah. about ventriloquist dolls, isn't there? And Ab- it's, um, absolutely. Yeah. I wrote a story called um, Heroes and Villains, which um, we dramatised, actually. Kim Newman did, uh, did a, sh- a show called uh, um, The Ghost Train Doesn't Stop Here Anymore. And it was a kind of amicus-style compendium of, uh, of short plays uh, Chris Fowler did one, I did one, uh, and I dramatised my, my ventriloquist dummy short story. Um, and I did some research for that, and, um, and God almighty, there's some spooky stuff out there. Um, and I found this one guy who, um, I didn't find him, I found writing about him, who, who made the dolls for, uh, for many of the leading ventriloquists of the day, and his, um, his most famous one was the Cheeky Boy doll. And oh. that kind of says it all, doesn't it? Oh. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> well, I, I get, I was going to say, I get, I've had sleep paralysis mm. since I was, I'm going to say 15, mm-hmm. 16. And I love hearing other people's sleep paralysis anecdotes mm. because it always makes me feel better. Mm. I'm very lucky because I only ever get the paralysis, which is bad enough. Mm. It's horrible. Be, waking up and not being able to, to move mm. is awful. But I've always been very fortunate that I don't get the figures looming over the bed. I don't get the sort of statues that walk mm. around. Except for one time, I think it was two summers ago, I had an afternoon nap. My brain woke up, I couldn't move, sleep paralysis. And I was like, it's horrible. Mm. To I've got certain exercises I do to snap myself out of it. I'll wiggle my toes or try and move my fingers. And then... I felt my dad walked in the room, mm-hmm. stood oh. by the side of the bed, and then walked around the bed. 
which is weird because my dad died in 2008. Mm. And as opposed to everyone I've ever spoken to or documentaries I've ever seen about sleep paralysis where people are horrified by things crawling along the walls, I woke up and just thought, that was lovely. Yeah. <laughs> I want that again. Yeah, yeah it's a nice, yeah, it nice dream. It was a nice one. Yeah. Oh, there yeah. you go. Haunted people and it's not always bad. <laughs> yeah, it is true. I always used to think that somebody sat on the end of my bed uh, when I was half Ooh. asleep. Um, mm-hmm. Although my, my nan did tell me that my house was haunted, so that was nice of her. So. <laughs> God bless nans. <laughs> and, and just on, on that on that point of um, uh, sleeping and so on, uh, Stephen, people like yourself with creative minds coming up with ideas, are you someone that keeps a, a notebook by, by, bed, by your bed and you'll wake up in the night and have an idea and write that down? Or do you have to get up in the night and type? Or what do you do? It doesn't happen often, um, but I did, I did get an entire novel out of, um, out of that entire exact situation one time that was my second book follower which is probably the book that's done worst of any that i wrote but uh, it did come from you know that just mo- that moment you have when you've just woken up and a dream is still crystal clear um and i got it written yeah. down um it's never actually happened since i mean most of my uh most of my my sort of imaginative exercises have all been waking ones. You know, I um, um, I remember when when Warriors Gate, my first uh, Doctor Who story, came out. Somebody said to my agent, "Oh, what's he been smoking?" And I think <laughs> I, I never smoke anything. I don't I don't take anything. You know, that's what the inside of my head looks like all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need any extra stuff. Yeah. I was going to ask about Warriors Gate because obviously. That was something I watched when I was 10. Oh, bugger. And having you in front of me. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're like crumbling to dust in front of my eyes at the moment. But I remember, obviously, I grew up with Doctor Who as a kid. Um, Tom Baker was my Doctor mm. Who. And I went through the whole gothic horror phase and the Daleks mm. and stuff. But I've got to say, Warrior's Gate was the first time I watched Doctor Who and felt like an adult mm? watching Doctor Who was starting to grow up. I didn't have a clue what was happening. I was going to say, is it because you couldn't understand it? <laughs> you weren't Not alone. Not at all, but it, bl- <laughs> no, it blew my mind. For anyone who hasn't seen it out there, I'd say it's the closest thing. If David Lynch wrote and directed a Doctor Who story, it would be Warrior's Gate. There's big white voids, and it's very sparse and very... I can't describe it. Yeah. It, it just... It changed me. Oh, kind of. It wasn't about monsters. It wasn't about the gothic stuff. Mm. It was just like, wow, this is, this is, adult. This is something else. This. The TARDIS, gone. TARDIS preserved in concept, mistress. This unit contains all necessary schedules for duplication of the TARDIS, mistress. Exactly, K nine. Biroc will help us use the gateway to travel anywhere in e-space, and we can give him time technology. You shall be our time lord. We will travel far. Our people are enslaved on many planets. And you and I, K-9, are going to help Birok free them. That's something we've got to do, don't you think? Affirmative, mistress. How close to your perception of Warrior's Gate was the finished article? There was a lot of stuff that I... Because I vastly overwrote the script. And then um, Chris Bidmead and uh, Paul Joyce, the director, put it down and uh, and carved a shooting script out of it, which means that there has been a lot of controversy since as to who the author of the script was. And fortunately, all my stuff, all my working papers are now in the uh, the city archive at Hull. 
my old university, uh, which is uh, means it's possible for any researcher. And Frank Collins, the author of the uh, the book on on Warriors Gate, the Black Archive, I think it's uh, part of the series of. Um, he went there and consulted it, so he did quite a, a, a good forensic analysis of, of how the story made its way through. I was quite prescriptive in in what I wanted to see on the screen. Um, the the white void of e space the uh, the look of the uh, of the tharils you know, the, uh, the the lion like creatures in it which were very very much based on the um, the beast in Jean Cocteau's La Belle et La Bête um, the passage through the mirrors which was Cocteau again um, in Orphée the the look of the uh, the gun down warriors which was Hamlet's father's ghost from Kaczynski's Russian version of, of Hamlet, the wow. um, the layout of the uh, the gateway, which was uh, last year at Marienbad, all of these references uh, were in the script from from the very beginning. Now, it wasn't my responsibility to put them on the screen. Credit for all of that goes to Paul Joyce, um, but. Also, you know, I, I I do claim my creator credit. Uh, yeah, I was not overwritten, and I um, I was not um, I was not misrepresented in any of those aspects. So, um, so I think the answer to your question is, yeah, I was very prescriptive, but it took other people's hands and other people's talents to actually bring them to the screen. Can I can I ask a no? Oh, sorry, Dave, go on, yeah, go for it. Sorry. I was just going to ask as well uh, on on Warriors Gate and the later Terminus. I mean, sorry, particularly Warriors Gate. Chris Birdman wanted more high concept stories, didn't he? At that time, I think, because quite a few of those are based. For example, Legopolis, which which is shortly afterwards, is based on um, C. Escher and things like that. Isn't it? I didn't mean uh, Legopolis. I of course meant Castrovalva was based on M. C. Escher drawings. I'm glad to say the fault has been cleared. We're now able to rejoin Blake Seven. Were you, were, you, were you approached and asked to do a higher concept story than would normally be the case? There was no guidance, really. It was... Um, I'd done a, a science fiction play for Radio 4, um, a thing called An Alternative to Suicide, with Michael Jaston in the lead. And the producer of that, Martin Jenkins, had sent, without me being aware of it, he'd sent my script over to the Doctor Who office. So I was contacted by them, and uh, they said, come in for a meeting. So I went in for a meeting with Chris Bidmead, and we, we kind of chatted. He got called out. I did my usual thing. I, I read everything on his desk while he was out of the office, so <laughs> I had a fair idea of what was going on around there. Um, and at the end of it, he said, well, you know, chuck us some ideas, and we'll see if we can get a commission out of it. And I came back to him with just one sheet of paper with... Um, Four episodes, you know, four paragraphs on it. Episode one, episode two, episode three, episode four. Um, and that was really, you know, that was Warrior's Gate in a nutshell. Everything that happened in the show pretty much was there on that piece of paper. I think it, I think it had the title of The Dream Time at that stage. Um, mm. And um, nobody kind of was prescriptive. Nobody told me what to do. Nobody urged me to either go over the top or to... I, ju I just threw in everything but the kitchen sink, you know, because I was, what, 23, 24, um, full of enthusiasm, full of energy. I'm still enthusiastic, maybe not quite so much energy now, but uh, but those are, you know, that it was a moment you cannot recapture, and I just poured everything into it. And, um, and it, you know, straight line of development from there to uh, to the screen with a lot of bumps along the way. 
So can I ask like a novice question on Doctor Who? Like if you're writing for or about Doctor Who, how do how do they kind of control that it's within what would be in the Doctor Who universe or what would be acceptable? Who who gets the final say on that kind of thing when you're writing for that universe? Bear in mind that what I wrote on was classic Who, which was um, you know pre Russell T Davis. Um, Completely different era, in a way, because the show went off the air for uh, for a good few years, during which fandom really kept the idea alive um, with with like the audio dramas from Big Finish and um, and the uh, the Virgin Adventures and uh, and lots and lots of, of fan writing and and amateur movies and stuff like that. Doctor Who never died; it just kind of went away from the public forum for a while. But in the old classic Who era, there was kind of less control. Um, it was something of a circus where every story could be completely different and start with a different premise and end in a different place. Uh, and that was part of the beauty of it, you know, because um, the only fixtures you had were the Doctor, whoever the current companion was, the TARDIS. And that was kind of it. You know, the um, right. the seasons didn't even, in the early days, didn't even have arcs to them. There was an e-space arc in season 18, which was the uh, the season that I first wrote in, where the Doctor and his companions got into e-space and had to get out again. Um, and that was kind of, you know, that was the entire story of the season. And what happened within the individual stories in the season was kind of down to whoever was writing it. And I always say that it's um, it's comparable to, you know, you've got a big empty room to cross, and there's a door that you go in by and there's a door that you go out by. And as you come in by the door, you're handed certain luggage. And when you and that's the, the kind of holdovers from any previous story. And when you go out the other door, you have to have certain objects that you're going to hand on to the next person. What happens in between, you know, what route you take, what you put down, what you pick up, what you collect, what you uh, discard, whatever happens, that's entirely up to you as long as you start from the place you're given and you finish at the place that you're given. And that was, that was classic who. I believe it's different now. I believe it's a lot more kind of controlled and, uh, and thought through in advance and pre-designed. And I think it's very much more hands-on by the showrunner, because there was no showrunner in uh, in Classic Who. There were, you know, there was a producer, there was a script editor, but there was nobody who, whose job it was to um, to conceive and rewrite stuff, which is what a showrunner essentially does. Um, it was something of a, of a very free playground. And of course, the great thing is that you, um, if you were a, a Doctor Who writer, you kept the copyright of, uh, of oh, anything right. that you brought into the show. So, you know, as you're crossing that big room, anything that you created there, you kept. So now if, um, you know, if, if the BBC wanted to do um, a series of action figures that included the Tharrells, they have to get a licence from me to do it. Um, oh, wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, and I am also free to, as long as I don't infringe any BBC copyrights, I'm also free to take those characters elsewhere and do other things with them, which I have done. You know, I um, I, I licensed them to uh, to Big Finish for a drama that I had nothing to do with, um, but, you know, I let other people run with the characters. And I'm involved with a, a company called Cutaway Comics, and we've... Uh, this week, just taking delivery of the first copies of uh, Faustine, Princess of Tharrell, which is a story of um, a Tharrell princess who escapes. She's, she's kidnapped by, by human slavers. 
she escapes and she escapes to Manchester in the 1990s and uh, she has in tow a human engineer who uh, who she's been making use of uh, they've been making use of each other because you know they they need each other to escape and you've got these uh, these two characters no no element of doctor who in it but um i was able to uh, to mine their backstory and expand their backstory and i had terrific fun doing it we got martin Garrity, who is sort of who royalty when it comes to uh, to the comic strip artwork um and in fact you can probably i know you can't see this on a sound podcast but you can see the cover of um of one of our uh, one of our issues on the wall and if I just tilt upwards, there's... Martin gave me the original artwork for the splash page. Wow, that's amazing. But, what an amazing thing to have in, uh, to own as well. But for uh, podcast for, purposes, you'll have to run out and buy the comic. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, listen, uh, Stephen, let's get your, your second scar, please. So we've got the first one there, which is your grandma's dolls. What would be the second scar? The exhibits in Buell Hill Park Museum. Buell Hill wow. Park is um, a park in Salford. Um, I haven't been back for years. I would not be surprised to find that it's a ruin now. I would be delighted to find that it's been restored and um, and is a fantastic resource for everybody around there. But at the time, there were there were key parks in Salford. There was Peel Park, um, where you also had a museum with um, with a reconstructed Victorian street on the ground floor, which is still there. I was there a few weeks ago, revisited it, and still has some of that old magic. They also had, in that same building, they had um, the original um, L.S. Lowry um, exhibition up there. All the stuff that's moved to the Lowry now used to be in Peel Park Museum. Buell Hill Park, one of its claims to fame was its mining exhibition. Um, And you would go to... You'd go into this back room, and that was the entrance to the mine, and you'd get crowded in, all you kids or your family or whatever, you'd get crowded into a mine elevator, and they would shut the doors, and they would pull the lever, and the elevator would descend, except, of course, it didn't go anywhere. What it had was it had rollers with 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 printed bricks on it and the rollers would start up and the bricks would go by and <laughs> and the idea was you were supposed to be descent and and you know there was a rumbling soundtrack if you were little enough you believed it and you know when i first went there i was little enough i believed it and as i as i grew up and whenever i went back i believed it a bit less and a bit less until finally i spotted the whole thing but it was like disney's haunted mansion for <laughs> For, for Salford kids. <laughs> yeah. And what would then happen is the doors on the other side would open and you would go out into this kind of reconstruction of a mine that uh, that they had with uh, with you know uh, piles of coal here and there and all the buttresses and uh, and you know they would explain how mining worked and it was an educational thing. That wasn't the thing that scared me though. Um on another floor of the museum they had the natural history stuff. And over in the corner, um, near a window, was a stuffed rhinoceros. And it was in a huge glass case. And you can imagine how huge the glass case would have to be for a rhinoceros. And you could walk all the way around it. But you couldn't see the other side of it as you approached it. And when you walked around the other side of it, what you realised was that the rhinoceros had been sawn in half. Oh, and that, words. and that, on one side was rhinoceros, on the other side was rhinoceros skeleton embedded in the other half of the rhinoceros, and 
Imagine this, you know, <laughs> when you weren't warned as a little kid, you walk around and there is this kind of horrific transformation takes place. Rhinoceros 2, spectral ghostly rhinoceros from hell because they'd, they'd not only kind of stripped the skeleton down, but obviously the shell of the rest of the rhinoceros was all around it. And they'd painted that in kind of bloody flesh colour. So it was oh, like, words, it was like, yeah. It was like a living, mutilated rhinoceros. So that genuinely scared me to the extent that even now I think I would hesitate to walk around the other side of the... I don't know if it's still there. I suspect it isn't. I think the museum closed probably years ago. Would be delighted to find that it hadn't, but uh, I must Google it after this, actually, and find out. But, um, but yeah, that was, uh, that was something that haunted my dreams for a while. So in terms of creating um, different races and creatures that you have done over the, over the course of your career, particularly, say, for Doctor Who, where do you go for inspiration when you're trying to create a, a, a creature or a space thing that's never existed before? Oh, well, yeah, there's no such thing as a new creation. Everything is, is you know, an assembly of, of things that you've seen and things that you've, you've felt. And the trick to it all, I always say, is when you can put two ideas together and they spark a third idea, then you take the third idea and run with it. Um, we mentioned Terminus for Doctor Who before, and uh, there was a costume in that. Um, a bunch of people who ran this leper colony in the middle of uh, known space called Terminus, uh, and these guys were called the Vanir, and that was based on North mythology, um, and they wore helmets that were based on on viking helmets but their their body armor was actually based on a tomb that i'd seen in york minster um oh wow um in york minster is a an example of what they called i believe a memento mori tomb so on the top layer of the tomb you have the the sleeping figure with the the hands steepled in front of it in in an attitude of prayer you know the sleeping corpse absolutely per perfect looking um you know, sleeping in death, but go one layer down, and they've taken the side off the tomb so you can see this, because this would not necessarily have been visible in the time, but hidden underneath that figure was a second carving of a decayed body. The same body rotted away with Whoa. just the flesh hanging off the, uh, off the bones. Pretty similar to, uh, to, to my rhinoceros from childhood. And I used that as the inspiration for the Vanius costume. So they're wearing um, a kind of dark, shiny, leathery kind of uh, costume, but with the ribs and the organs and everything kind of modelled on the outside. And the, uh, the costume designer on that show, Dee Robson, um, I remember her showing me her sketches before we actually got into production, and she said, is this the kind of thing you were looking for? And I said, God, yes, that's absolutely spot on. And she went ahead and she executed those costumes perfectly. Oh, wow. So it's just a combination of different things there as well. Yeah. Uh, Stephen, let's get your, let's get your, your third scar then uh, very quickly. I had an uncle who worked on Salford. Well, I had two uncles who worked on Salford Docks. There was my Uncle Albert and there was my Uncle Bill. Um, and my Uncle Albert um, used to call off at our house because it was halfway between... Uh, his um, his work and his home. And the reason he used to call off was because um, 
the docks were was quite a place from what I can gather. Um, everybody had a nickname. Um, like there was a foreman called they called the sheriff because he would turn up and all the dockers would be just hanging around and he'd say, "Come on, lads, what's the hold up?" Uh, my uncle's name was uh, Lazy Face because <laughs> he was <laughs> he was either found asleep somewhere or he would slope off to the pub at lunchtime. And when uh, when he was on his way home. He, his, his bladder wouldn't last the bus ride all the way home, so he'd stop off at our house for a pee, which re- really used to infuriate me, Dad. And I remember him coming by one time, and he was absolutely ashen-faced. And the reason for it was that they'd had a drowning in, uh, in the Manchester Ship Canal, and um, the body had been in there for some time. Uh, they apparently had quite often had the drownings in, in the Irwell, in the Manchester Ship Canal. The Irwell ran between Manchester and Salford, and apparently whenever there was a drowning, the police on either side used to line up with boat hooks and they would push the body over towards the other side so that they wouldn't have to be the ones to fish it out. <laughs> and, <laughs> and my uncle was actually, you know, he was, he was not soft. He'd been in the army. He'd, um, you know, he'd, uh, he'd served... <laughs> Spent most of it in the glass house, from what I was told. But, <laughs> and um, but you know he was he was no shrinking violet, and he came out and he was absolutely white and ashen faced. And what had happened is he'd heard that oh they're fishing a body out of the dock, so he'd gone down to have a look. And he was so sorry because the body had been in for quite a while. It had been bloated. It had been fished out. And I always remember the way that he described it. He said the the face was blown up so that it had an expression like a goldfish. And wow. again, that was that was incredibly kind of um, telling. To uh, to I, I forget how old I was, but I was again in that. You know, this had been the nineteen sixties. Again, I was in that extremely impressionable phase, and the notion of that that kind of horrific um, horrific appearance. You know, the 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 distortion of the human to the to an unrecognisable degree really did horrify me and uh, and it did stay with me and uh at the age of 16 uh i remember you know going to the prince's cinema in monton for one of those sunday horror double bills and the second half of the double bill was a movie called carnival of souls completely unknown at the time it's kind of you know become something of uh a well-known cult favourite since. But at the time, it, nobody had heard of it. Nobody knew anything about it. It just popped up. It was made um, for very little money by a guy called Herc Harvey. And it was this spooky horror tale of uh, a woman who survives a drowning. Car goes off a bridge. Um, three girls in one car, three boys in another, and the boys pull up alongside and say, hey, want to race? And they're kind of flirting with the girls and they race across this trestle bridge somewhere in uh, in deep of Heartland, America. And the car with the girls in it goes off the bridge. And there's only one survivor and that's Candace Hilligoss. And she crawls out of the mud and um, she survived. And she's on her way uh, to take up a job as uh, as the organist in a church in a nearby town. And when she gets to the nearby town, on the way to the to the town, she has weird visions and nightmares. And when she gets to the town, then the nightmares increase until finally she's drawn to this seaside pavilion where the dead are all dancing. And they draw her in 
and she becomes part of the Carnival of Souls. You know, the uh, the man who has been haunting her all the way through is there beckoning to her, and she goes in. And then it cuts to the police in the town that she came from dredging the car out of the river, and there are three bodies in it, and one of them is her. And, you know, whammo, wow. she was dead all along. And the two things really, really connected for me. Um, and it became... You know, Carnival of Souls became one of the influences of my career. You know, I, I've been I've, I've been throwing influences at you right, left, and centre, but Carnival of Souls is a central one. And Kim Newman is the the, the one who um, observed from my novels that there is always somebody drowning in a car somewhere if you can uh, if you can find it. In October, you know, the uh, wow. the TV show that I did, you can see Stephen Tompkinson dragging um, a Volkswagen. With uh, with a police detail out of the uh, the sea, uh, and, and there's a dead body in it. In Downriver, three lads die in a in a car, and a policeman dies in his car. Or does he? Because he's back. Um, and um, all of it, I think, I think it was the um, my uncle's story that kind of softened me up for it. And then the movie kind of gave me a language to to express exactly what it was that was disturbing me. Mary Henry. Are you all right? How'd you get out? Here, put this on. We better get you back to town. What about the other girls? I don't remember. And I think career-wise, that's what I've been doing all the way along. You know, things that... I don't necessarily find disturbing, but that other people do. I've been looking for a language to, to communicate on that. You've just reminded me of a horrible thing from my childhood that I probably should have chosen as one of my biggest uh. scars. My, my dad worked in a garage, mm. and every time they got a crashed car in, he mm. would say, come down, look at the crashed car. Uh, and, and the, the one I very clearly remember is he showed me this car and the front was smashed in, the, the windows had been smashed in, and it was covered in blood inside. There was blood everywhere inside, on the, mm. on the carpets, on, the, on the, the faces and stuff. And he said to me, he said, oh yeah, they said this, this one crashed, and uh, they couldn't find one of the passengers in the car until they found oh the my. body, until they found the body squashed into the footwell. Um, oh my god! Oh, uh, wow. uh, yeah, and, and that also, sorry, that reminded me mm -hmm. of the one time I went to see the the, the Chamber of Horrors at, at Madden Two Swords, and the thing that scared me wasn't the murderers; it was they had a waxwork of a car crash with mm -hmm. little waxworks of the dead bodies of the family that were in the car. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so, so yeah, bodies in cars is a big one for me. So. <laughs> I remember the the horror writer Brian Lumley telling me of um, of a, a I don't know if he'd witnessed the crash or if he'd just seen the car afterwards, but the uh, the car had hit someone and they'd been thrown across the bonnet and into the windscreen, and he said you could see the impression of the person's face in a recognisable maybe he was bullshitting me I don't know, but he said you could see the person's <laughs> face actually imprinted into the shattered glass of the the windscreen. I've got a big question about your right well not that your influences but we've talked about doctor who mm. some of your novels the the kind of the influences on some of the imagery in your novels but some of your later writing chimera 
October. Um, oh, what was it called? The Patrick Stewart miniseries, Eleventh Hour. Hour. Yeah. Um, Chimera was massive. 1990, 1991, mm-hmm. huge um, controversy about the levels of violence in episode one. It was all over the tabloids. Brilliant miniseries about um, a secret kind of government experiment to combine human and monkey DNA. It creates a half-boy, half-monkey who escapes from the lab and goes on a murderous rampage. Um, October, which I seem to remember, was about a kind of ruthless pharmaceutical company. And Eleventh Hour was a, a kind of a different scientific horror every week. You seem to be very interested about not just science... But the idea of science gone mad or rogue science is that is that a concern of yours? Because it seems to seems to thread through a lot of your work. Uh, yeah, I mean a concern. I don't know an opportunity certainly. Um, I mean one of the uh, the writers that there are two writers that I think I was really influenced by at a very key point in uh, in what I, uh, <laughs> I laughingly call my development, uh, and one of them was William Goldman. And the uh, the reason that I found him so fascinating was that he was equally strong as a novelist and as a screenwriter. And the other guy was Michael Crichton, who, uh, when I was uh, when I was at school, I won the school prize for English one year, and they gave you a book token that you could go along and spend at Wilshaw's in Manchester, and you would choose your book, and um, Wilshaw's would then package it up and send it to the school, and you'd be presented with it on prize day. And the the book that I chose was uh, The Terminal Man, Michael Crichton, which was exactly that kind of blend of plausible science and out-and-out kind of, you know, breaks off. I don't know whether you'd call it breaks off horror, but certainly, you know, um, an unleashed imagination. And so, with that kind of in mind, when I did came to do Chimera, I very much had the Crichton model in mind. So I thought, you research the science, you, you research it as deeply as you can. I've never really been a scientist because I don't have the maths for it. You know, I could never have pursued a science career because, you know, going back to that, um, that early school report, a weakness in numbers balanced by a, a strength with language. Um, mm-hmm. So I could never be a scientist, but I can be a science kind of groupie. And so when I, uh, when I <laughs> came to do Chimera, I couldn't do the science, but I could talk to scientists about it. You know, and they would, um, they would quite happily kind of speculate and, uh, and you know, trade ideas with me. Um, I realized that you can just ask people about their work and... When you ask people about their work, they will be freely giving of, of information because, you know, everybody loves to be asked about what they do because, you know, people aren't always, uh, you know, people don't always show that much interest from outside. And so Chimera then became the model for, for what I would do later on. Um, I would always, you know, look into the research. I would find an area of, um, of maybe science, maybe technology, you know, Maybe mythology as well, but it seemed to me that science was the modern mythology, and uh, and whereas you know in uh, in the fifteenth or sixteenth centuries you might have looked to to uh, to ghosts and um, and legends for your inspiration. Now we can look to science, and uh, and we don't have to retread the old ground because there is new ground presented to us. But the funny thing is that when you do that what you do is you find yourself reenacting all the patterns of those old myths and legends. So Chimera is, you know, it's the, uh, it's the Prometheus story 
it's the Frankenstein story. It's got echoes of all of that. And it's not that I was consciously imitating the uh, the forms that went before, but as you work on the ideas and, and develop them in the ways that they demand to be developed, they kind of fall into those patterns. Well, I think one, one thing that uh, comes across in all of this, uh, Stephen, is your incredible memory. It seems like you, you remember your recall of stuff is unbelievable. Is that, is that a blessing or a bit of a curse? You, you seem to take on board everything that you've witnessed or seen or consumed all the way through your life and career. It's a strangely selective memory. And, you know, speak to my wife about my memory because <laughs> <laughs> she, she will quite happily tell you that I've forgotten something she said to me 30 seconds ago. And this is true, you know. It's, um, it's, it's the, the old adage of, you know, Stephen will, uh, will excel in, 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 that, in, in areas in which he is interested and, uh, yeah. <laughs> and tough luck if, if he isn't. Now, it's, um, it's, as I say, selective memory and things that make big sensory impressions on me. Um, they tend to linger. They tend to last. And, um, and I seize upon them as material. You know, that's the great thing about yeah. the um, about the engagement that I had from the very early day. You know, always having a project on the go, always having some way of of wanting to participate in the entertainment that I uh, I I love. So I suppose what happened was, you know, I was I was so imaginatively engaged with the uh, with, you know, with with the TV, with the books, with the comics, with everything else that I was taking in. I was so engaged. It was almost as if I wasn't just consuming them, but I was part of them. You know, the, yeah. it was it was a two way two way dialogue, and uh, and I just wanted to continue the dialogue. And when uh, whenever I got the chance, you know, if um, if I could sell it, I'd do it, and if I couldn't sell it, I would do it anyway. And that's the whole point of this podcast: these mm. things that have such a big effect on you, and, mm. and you know what they tell you about your life and mm. affect it going forwards. So, well, let's recap then on those three scars: uh, Stephen Gallagher, the first one, uh, your grandma's dolls; mm. the second one, half of a rhinoceros; and the third one, a dead body in the docks <laughs> or the river. <laughs> uh, that, yeah, it's the worst shag marry lovely. kill ever. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's been a real honour to have you on the podcast, uh, Stephen. You're, you're an incredibly busy man. Uh, what have you got coming up next? What, what people listening to this thinking this is fantastic? I've never, uh, you know, uh, consumed a Stephen Gallagher thing before. How can they get? What's the next thing you have got coming out? Next thing, uh, well, I mentioned the comic before, which is out uh, next week. I think it's going out to the uh, the Kickstarter investors first, and then it'll be on wider sale in comic shops. I've got the novella, which I've just delivered to Subterranean. I'm working on a, a very big um, international drama project for TV that I can't really talk about, but I was working on it just as COVID kicked in, and I was about to get on a plane to New Zealand to uh, to scout locations and meet the Maori king and um, and wow. you know work with various uh, various partners over there the week before lockdown started. And of course, you know what happened in New Zealand as soon as lockdown started. They were, they were out of it for a year. That project kind of you know, died on its backside. And um, I can't really say much about the subject or the, uh, or the ambition of it. And of course, you know, if, if any Americans get involved, then I am a member of the WGA, so I don't want it to become a struck project, so I can't kind of go in that direction. But at the moment, you know, we're... we're you know, we're just talking to uh, to the Kiwis about it, and um, and it looks as if you know they, there's a good chance that that co-production might uh, 
might revive itself. The corpse of it may revive, may may rise up from from under the slab, and uh, <laughs> we'll be <laughs> like Lazarus. Yeah, we'll be back into life again. Amazing. Well, keep an eye out for that. And it's been a real honour chatting to you uh, on Scarred for Life. Thank you so much for coming on, Stephen Gallagher. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. You have been listening to Scarred for Life. A big thank you again to Stephen Gallagher. This is a stellar content production edited by Stephen Brotherstone. The title music is Scarred for Life by the Soulless Party. Thank you for joining us. Remember, do have nightmares. We will return with another guest and some stuff that scared the life out of them next week. <laughs> <laughs>